the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Welcome to our continuing study in the life and teaching of Paul. I'm broadcasting from my office in downtown Houston, and I appreciate your uh, patience as I deal with the flexibility of trying to do a recording and PowerPoint and dealing with my notes and everything else. So I appreciate your uh, patience as I work through these issues. We're continuing our study that we've been doing for the last almost two years, and it's a uh, study that is winding down to the end of the life of Paul, but we're not quite there yet. We've got quite a bit more to cover. But uh, last week, if you were with us, you saw that he finished his time in his first imprisonment of house arrest, that he was released and spent a little bit of time in Rome and most probably went to Spain, although it's not clear if he had any success at all. There's no legacy of a tradition that survived him. Uh, he returned to Rome at some point, and this week we find him writing a letter to one of his friends and co-workers, Titus, who's stuck on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and Titus wants out. Uh, it is a fantastic story. Uh, it's one that has a lot of application what we're dealing with uh, now in 2020 with this virus situation we find ourselves in, and I think you're going to like your study. Normally in class, I would hand out a uh, piece of paper that would outline our notes. Uh, ultimately, I will have one on the class website for you that you can have just for your own materials. But for now, I'm going to teach uh, without a handout, so I'm going to try to do it in a manner that I think you can either take notes on your own or annotating your Bible or anything you want to do. Just listen, and you can do that. Uh, but it's a great story, and I'm glad you're here with us for our lesson. Our story begins in the fall of 63. Not 1963, which is a year and number in our class, remember with great fondness. Not 1863, a year that a number of you feel so old that you think you should remember, but just 63. Paul's been out of prison for years, I indicated earlier. He's now got some time to spend back in more familiar territory. And so we've got a guy that's uh, going to travel back and do some uh, missionary work back uh, into the place that he's familiar with, and you'll discover uh, that uh, in his particular uh, work that he continues on and uh, takes his friend named Titus. Uh, I've got a number of pictures of Titus. No one has any clue what he looks like. It's uh, something in history that did not give us a description of height, width, weight, hair color, anything else. So we've got artists, but I like this one. Uh, because it was from a Spanish artist named Greco that does a pretty good job uh, capturing the reality of what people would have looked like back then. And he's young. That's the one thing we know about. He's probably 20 to 30 years old. In this particular story, we've got a guy that picks up on last week's lesson on why is God silent. Because as you're going to see, he's been praying to God to get him out of the ministry situation that he's in. He's been praying for a new home. He's been praying for a new job. He's been praying for somebody else to come along and do something so he doesn't have to continue to be miserable anymore. And just like us many times in the situations we find ourselves in, he's asking God to move him, but he doesn't think God's answering. 
So Paul is going to write a letter back to him and address his complaints of, God, get me out of here. And we're going to see how that develops and see some applications into where we find ourselves today. It's fascinating because as Paul left Rome with a number of different people, including Titus, who we're going to study this week, and Timothy, who we're going to study next week, they originally sailed to the island of Crete. Crete sits about uh, 50 miles south of the Greek mainland. It's an island that uh, is about 80 miles uh, lengthwise, about six miles at its tightest uh, distance, uh, north and south. Uh, so it's kind of long and skinny. Uh, and today it's a gorgeous island full of all kinds of resorts and physical beauty. But in Paul's time, it was the remote backwaters of the Roman Empire. It was undeveloped. There were no institutions of higher learning. You would not go there to study. It was not a place where you would have a vacation home. It was too hard to get to. Cold in the winter, hot, blazing hot in the summertime. Not a place where you would want to go, and Titus did not like being stuck there. Uh, we've got, as I said, a number of different artistic pictures. This one's good because it captures his Greek heritage. He's not of Jewish descent. He is of Greek background, so the little wreaths in his hair, the type of dress he's wearing. And this picture I thought was good showing his Greek background. His Greek background is the reason why Paul took him back to Jerusalem when he went back uh, in Acts chapter 15 to talk about a big theological debate about whether you had to be a Jew first before you became a Christian. Titus was his example. He pointed to Titus and said, he's a Christian. His life is proof of it. He's not a Jew, and I'm not going to circumcise him. I can do anything else in Jewish uh, tradition or Old Testament requirement. So Titus was his example of why you did not have to be uh, Jewish or go through circumcision in order to be a Christian. Uh, this is another picture that uh, our Eastern Orthodox friends have of what Titus looked like. Uh, in the references to him in Galatians, if, uh, two different times he's not mentioned. In 2 Corinthians, he's mentioned four different times, including the carrier of the letter that brought that to the church at Corinth. No mention of what he looked like or anything about him. And in 2 Timothy, as you'll see in a couple of weeks, he's mentioned twice as being with Paul up until the very end of his life. So he was clearly a close friend. He's a very mature believer. But he finds himself on the island of Crete with uh, a great, dislike of where he is, where he's living, what he's doing, and he wants out. Uh, Crete, as I indicated, is a very uh, large island, a modest-sized island based on uh, contemporary standards. Back then it would have been very rugged, with not a lot of roads, uh, not a lot of business development or anything else in the Roman Empire. The people there were thought of in the lowest possible terms within the Roman Empire. They were regarded as liars. They were regarded as lazy. They were regarded as uh, hedonistic and just pursuing earthly pleasures. It was a place basically for pirates or people that couldn't afford to go anywhere else. It's not somewhere you went to if you were looking uh, for the upper middle class or business opportunities or anything else. Paul saw it as an opportunity for evangelism. The Holy Spirit saw it as a group of people that needed the message. And Titus was the guy that got stuck there, and he didn't like it.
Today it's a very beautiful island. I'm sorry that my picture on the screen clouds up or covers up part of it. This is a view of one of the seaports on the southeastern side. It's absolutely gorgeous. There's resorts. There's wonderful homes. There's just wonderful things to see if you ever go visit there. Other pictures of some of the uh, seaside harbors showing how beautiful and blue the water is. You can see all the condominiums and houses with windows overlooking the ocean. This is a view uh, from uh, the northern side of the island. You can see how beautiful the water is and how some of the rolling hills uh, give it a lot of picturesque beauty uh, for this picture taken in the summertime. On the western side of the island, the side closer to Spain than towards uh, the Middle East, uh, there's actually pretty big mountains. And certain, certain times during the winter, you can see uh, snow, including this picture taken in January of a couple of years ago, showing tremendous amounts of snow in the western uh, side of the mountains, where they actually get up to several thousand feet above sea level, giving even more picturesque beauty to the island. Uh, we also have a number of Roman ruins there. You've got to dig down through about 40 or 50 feet of soil because it's been covered over uh, as the years passed. But uh, there's some great ruins there showing uh, Roman architecture and the buildings that were there because clearly it was a part of the Roman Empire. But when Paul was there, as I said, it was very backwater. It was not the place where Timothy wanted to be, sorry, where Titus wanted to be, particularly without Paul. And it was a place where he found himself that he just was with people he hated, places he hated. It's interesting that today a derogatory English word still reflects that historic perception of the island of Crete. Our term of a Cretan, which indicates on the screen an offensive term for someone that's unintelligent, uh, is one that still exists today. You can uh, derogatorily call somebody a Cretan and most people know what you're talking about. That's a reflection of the negative historical attitude towards this island. And you can get a little bit of a glimpse why Titus did not enjoy being there. One of the things that's fascinating to me here is also uh, the term from Latin uh, that most closely paralleled Cretan was Christanus. Uh, and as we would translate that Christian, you can see how in early Latin, uh, their perspective of Christian was equally negative as to that of someone from Crete. We'll talk a little bit more in future lessons about why that was true at this point in time in the Roman Empire. But uh, it's interesting how that negative view of a culture still exists today two millennium later. Uh, as I indicated on uh, once they, uh, last week, once they left Crete, Paul leaves Titus there. Titus then communicates his displeasure. He doesn't like where he's living. He doesn't like what he's doing. He doesn't like the people he's with. He wants out. Paul is going to go to Nicopolis, a city we're going to look at in just a minute, and ride him back. Before Paul got there, he went up to Ephesus. He leads Timothy there. And while Timothy stays there to pastor, Paul ultimately is going to write back to him in Ephesus and write what we now call 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And we're going to start 1 Timothy next week. Paul then moved on up to Troas back over into Greece and Philippi, down to Corinth where he ministered through the spring and the summer. And now as fall is approaching, he's moving back up towards the north. He stops at Nicopolis and he's going to write back to Titus. Ultimately, Titus is going to join him there. And uh, if you went to Nicopolis today, it's an amazing city. It's one of the most amazing cities in Greece because you can still see things that Paul saw. This is the city gate of Nicopolis. It's a city that uh, Alexander, that uh, 
Herod uh, helped pay for, that Caesar Augustus is the one that founded. It was a city that was started just a couple of decades uh, before Christ was born in reflection of a monument by Caesar Augustus for his defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the war over what was going to happen with Egypt and all of the Middle East. Caesar Augustus won. This city is what he developed as a kind of an eastern outpost for his empire to give him and his troops greater access to the Middle East and to Egypt. And it's fascinating because it still exists today in its ruins. From this front gate, which Paul would have walked through as he entered the city, if you stop and look to the right, you can see just how big the city was, how long the archaeological wall is. It was very, very large for a city that had only been around for several decades by the time that Paul visited. Uh, if you turn around from that front gate and look behind you, you can see how close it is to the water. That's looking into the Aegean Sea. There's a harbor that comes in. The ships in Paul's day would have been down there. He walked up several uh, flights of stairs to get to the city gates. Then once he walks through the city gates, this is the road he would have been on. It's the main street in Nicopolis. There would have been huge buildings to the right. There would have been stores to the left. Uh, city Hall, uh, their city library would have been off to the left, off to the right would have been places where there would have been more shops, uh, places to get food, places to have exchange with other people like parks. And uh, it's just a wonderful place with amazing archaeology there today although no one has lived there since the 5th century. Uh, at the very end of Main Street, there's an amphitheater that still exists. Paul, if he would have gone to a, a meeting of the citizens of the city or had gone to a play uh, at night, he would have sat here in these seats. It's possible he may have even preached here. We have no historical record of it, but it's a wonderful uh, amphitheater that you can sit in, and they've put concrete in some of the lower seats so you can actually sit there. So uh, it's been renovated or I should say updated a little bit to give some great little perspective on uh, what it would have looked like, at least in terms of seating while Paul was there. So Paul and Titus ultimately spent the winter there of 63 into 64 before they go on back to Rome, before Paul writes 1 Timothy, and then uh, they go on to Rome, which we'll capture once we get towards the end of 1 Timothy. In this particular situation, though, the lesson is Titus is stuck where he does not want to be. Very much like we can relate to today with this virus situation of being stuck at home under a home confinement order or being stuck uh, outside of your place of employment or being stuck in a place of unemployment. I think a lot of us can more relate to the situation Titus was in uh, than in a lot of other times of our lives. And so in this situation, Titus found himself stuck on this island with people that he hated, living in places that he hated, doing a ministry that he hated, stuck without Paul or other people to help him, and he is basically crying, God, get me out of here. And God answers that prayer by writing this letter. And so we're going to draw some truths from this letter, and I think you're going to enjoy what we see. Because it picks up on the issues we talked about last week, about hearing the voice of God, and what do you do when you don't immediately hear the voice of God? Because Titus was stuck there for several months, praying daily, God, get me out of here. And God finally, ultimately, after months of frustration, has Paul writing this letter that gives him an answer that answers his question and gives us truths that we can apply today. And I start the book by looking at how Paul starts with them that says we're saved to serve. It's a reminder that it's not about our comfort. It's not about how we would design our lives if we were God. He says you're saved, Titus. 
you're saved, all of us, in order to serve. Look how he starts. He starts by talking about himself and then letting us draw the inference. Because he says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Lots of stuff to, impact, to, to pull out of there, but I just want to focus on what I put in gold because it gives us three reflections of what Paul thinks about himself. That inevitably Titus, as he sees himself as a co-worker of Paul, would say, that's also applicable to me. We also, as Christians, as readers, ought to have the same application to us. So if Paul says, I'm a slave of God, and then number two says, I am selected, I'm the faith of, I have the faith of God's elect, and then third, one that possesses a truth that leads to godliness is someone who's changed to serve, it's changed to do something different. So the person that, if Titus looks at this and says, well, if Paul's a slave of God, I guess I am too, the inference is how many slaves get to decide where they live and who they work with and what they do. Good slaves are obedient. So if Paul starts out saying, I'm not here for my own pleasure, you're not either, we're slaves to God the Father, it's trying to reorient the way he thinks about this. And then to the sovereign that selects you, the second thing that I highlighted on the screen, it's a recognition that if the sovereign calls you to do a job, you don't get to do whatever you want to do. You do the job the sovereign asks you to do. So if the sovereign says, I need you to minister here, I've chosen for you to live in this particular place, then you deal with it till God opens up another door. So it's a fascinating situation where Paul says, we're all slaves, I am and you are too. We're selected by God. We're elected to do good things for him, to be to have godliness in the things we do in our service. So he starts out with this idea that we're saved to serve, not saved to live a life of luxury or a life of comfort or anything else. But then he transitions into what Paul's or what Titus is really griping about, which is, I'm happy to lead. I just don't want to lead here. I'm happy to lead but I want a new home that I can lead out of. I'm happy to lead, but I want different people to lead with or to lead who I'm going to lead. So Paul tackles that issue about how do you lead with godliness, particularly when you don't want to be there. You're praying for a different opportunity. You're praying for a different circumstance. He says in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed to you to appoint elders in every town, and then he describes what he wants in his leaders that Titus is going to find. Blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children. And he talks about overseers, another role in the church, an administrator. Blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered. And he describes a number of things that are the, the commitment and the conduct of the person leading a church. Now, it's fascinating here, and remember that at the time Paul's writing this, there's no written idea in Scripture of how churches ought to operate. There's no idea in, in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, about who the leaders would be or the qualifications are. So as Paul writes Scripture in this letter to Titus, he's given the outline of who ought to be leading. And there's a pretty obvious inference here. If the people that Titus is choosing to lead the church on this little backwards island have these characteristics, Titus ought to as well. And so if Titus is going to pick people, 
that have certain qualifications and certain character traits, he's got to have them as well. So I want to point out where, you, where I highlighted in gold about blameless. That does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. It means the person that when they do wrong addresses it. They ask for forgiveness. They go to God to have it addressed. And so blameless is simply someone that can stand right before God, even if there's sin in their life. It means they don't allow sin to go on unaddressed. I've also got to address this issue of husband and one wife. It's not in the context of divorce here. It's in the context of a literal translation of a one-woman man. And it was in reference to the polygamistic society that existed on that island. I mentioned the fact that they were heedless, that they viewed anything they, they wanted to do, they could do. And that led, among some people on that island, to the view that polygamy was an okay thing to do. Kind of a might mate's right. If a strong, rich guy wanted to do that, he could do that. So God was saying through Paul to Titus, that's not who we want leading the church. We want one-woman men leading the church. Uh, and then he describes some of the other character traits involved. He then goes on and talks about some of those other characteristics I read about not being arrogant, not being addicted to wine. Notice it doesn't say not a drinker. It just says don't be addicted to it. Not a bully and not someone who's greedy for money. And then it transitions into the positive things about being hospitable, loving those things that are good, sensible, righteous, holy. Once again, if Paul's looking for these traits in other men, it's something he's got to demonstrate. So it's saying... The person that has these character traits is not the person that's focusing on the type of people they want to lead, the type of place they want to minister, how nice their house is, how nice their work environment is. He says, I want to focus on these character traits, and there's not a focus on what Titus's self-centered focus would be of his comfort or his wealth or his ease of work or other things like that. So it's a fascinating insight on how Paul uses a focus on others to make Titus and us reflect on ourselves. But then notice how it ends by talking about you want people in ministry that you can encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. He's going to expand on this as he goes forward, but it's an interesting concept that we've got to have other people that we teach that then in turn turn around and do teaching themselves, not necessarily big groups, not actually like a pastor, but one-on-one, -on -one, people in their family, people in their work, people in their community. And so he's starting to introduce an idea of discipleship that Paul taught Titus, Paul taught them, Titus is teaching them, and the purpose is they in turn have to be able to both encourage the other people they're talking to with sound teaching and to refute anybody that jumps up and wants to contradict it. It's interesting because he introduces this idea of leadership. A great little quote on leadership I put on the screen from John Maxwell that says, a leader is one who knows the way, who goes the way, and he shows the way. And I like that because I thought that was a good description of what Paul was trying to bring Titus into. One that leads when he's uncomfortable, that leads when he's miserable, that leads when he's unhappy, that leads while he's got greater desires for himself, but put those under, puts those underneath the view of those that he's trying to teach from. It's essentially the concept of discipleship. He's trying to be one, a disciple of Paul. He's trying to make one among those he's trying to bring into the church with the hope that they then replicate that spiritual DNA. They teach others, then those people go out and teach others, and it expands and it replicates from there. He then goes down and he looks and he tackles the issue of dealing with trouble, dealing with 
those people or those circumstances where uh, Paul Titus was finding a great deal of frustration. And he gives them some understanding of how to deal with this kind of trouble. And this is really fascinating because he says in verse 10 of chapter 1, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. And here he's talking about those who are in the church. And he says it's necessary to silence them for they overthrow whole, whole households teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. So he initially says if somebody's in the church and they're teaching wrong theology, you got to silence them. you got to shut them up. But then he goes on. He says it's not just a matter of keeping them quiet. It says in verse 12, one of their very own prophets said Cretans are always liar, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. When you think about that quote from a prophet from the island, not a biblical prophet, but it's a reference of someone that used to live on that island talking about them in such negative ways, and for the Holy Spirit to have that repeated for Scripture, it's a pretty big indictment on this place where uh, Titus is serving. It's a recognition that God knows where he is. God knows how frustrated it is. He knows how bad these people are. But he says, when he says, this testimony is true about those people, and if they have bad theology, rebuke them sharply so they can be sound in the faith and not pay attention to Jewish myth and the commands of men who reject the truth. So it's reflection for those in the church that he's got to silence them and he's got to rebuke them. And it's an interesting parallel for us because you notice what he's not doing. He's not saying you stop them and you rebuke them for lifestyle issues. He's saying you silence them over theological issues, you rebuke them over theological issues. And it's a fascinating parallel for us today because his point for all the bad they were doing, for all the conduct they were doing, it's not a rant about stopping a certain type of conduct. It's outlining the principles by which he can get to people's heart and then change the conduct that follows. So the issue for us is how do we deal with these issues? Because he says in verse 15, to the pure, everything is pure, but those who are defiled, the unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. That's how you know these are talking about believers. But they deny him by their works. So once again, he's not talking about pagans. He's talking about believers and how you've got to approach them. And if there's a disagreement over theology or you don't like something they're doing, what do you do? What he gave to Paul, or so Titus, is a really clear uh, instruction to silence and refute. When we look at it in the 21st century, we say, Chris, well, that's a neat little concept. That's a lot tougher when I'm out in the driveway with a neighbor. That's a little tougher when I'm around the water cooler with somebody at the office, when we're in the office together, or having lunch with them, we can have lunch together, different things like that. So let me give you a little practical insight and something I've recently read. I want to share a book title with you that I just read this week that I really, really love. It's written by a pastor of a Southern Baptist church in California called Finding the Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. And the reason I got this book and the reason I like this book is, one, I knew I was going to be teaching this, but two, it picks up on an idea that Albert Moeller, Al Moeller came up with a number of years ago. He's the president of Southern Seminary, and he came up with this idea of what he called theological triage, which is taking a medical term and applying it to theology. 
And this book outlines what Moeller originally said in a speech when he termed theological triage, and it simply recognizes that when this issue that we're talking about in Titus hits us in our lives, someone that I'm dealing with in ch- from another denomination or another uh, religion, uh, and we're talking about things of God, what is it appropriate to disagree on? What's it appropriate to silence them and rebuke them, and where is it not appropriate? And the idea of triage recognizes that there's some things that are really, really important and other things that are much less important. Because if you view in an ultra-fundamentalist way every single thing in Scripture as having the exact same theological importance, you get the divinity of Christ on the same level as the sinfulness of dancing. That's a problem. And so this book outlines how you can look at different things and put them into first, what would the author and what Muller call the first, second, third tiers. The first tier is what he's talking about, the things that Paul says to Timothy, you ought to silence somebody that's got bad theology and rebuke somebody with bad theology, or the fundamentals of the Christian faith. That's the Trinity. That's the virgin birth of Christ. That's uh, Christ's divinity. That's the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the promise of Christ's return. Those are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. A secondary issue he identifies as being okay to disagree on, but as a practical matter, we don't need to have huge theological fights over it because we're all still Christians. Those examples for a second-tier theological point is something like the different ways of baptism, sprinkling versus immersion. Yeah, we disagree with the Methodist over that and a number of other people, but he's saying, as a second-tier issue, you don't need to have drop-dead fights to the death over something like that. And then the third-tier issue, he says, is something we as Christians should not even disagree over. We can have our own opinions, but it's not something that we should be dogmatic about. And as an illustration of that, he identifies something such as the age of the earth. Because God has the ability to create with the appearance of age we're never going to be able to figure out exactly how old the earth is or the stars are because the things we estimate could have been created with the appearance of age. So getting into a fight over whether something's 4,000 years old or 7,000 years old or 4.5 billion years old, the author and Moeller argue is not something that we need to divide on and have theological disagreement on. Instead, focus on the first here. Focus on the hill that's worth dying on. So if you want to get a book to read, it's great theological insight and applying this lesson. That's a good one. That's why I put it up on the screen. You can get it for about 10 or 15 bucks on Amazon Christian book. I read it in about two nights, and it was a great little read, so I wanted to put it up on the screen since we're talking about this. So with that little insight on the hill worth dying on and his instructions to Titus about what you want to focus on, notice the obvious. He's not instructed him or given him an answer to his prayer of God, get me out of here. And so then he transitions into his next little point as we go into chapter 2, which is the idea of using our spiritual gifts. And this is fascinating because still he's not answering the question, but he's talking to him about what to do with the spiritual gifts. And he says here in the first part of uh, chapter 2, he addresses men, and he says in the first part, but you must say these things with sound teaching. And he talks about the characteristics of older men, being level-headed and worthy of respect and sensible, and the same way encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. And then he continues on down in verses 7 and 8, and he says, Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. 
your message is to be on reproach. The opponents will be ashamed, having nothing to say about us. Here he's talking about the idea of teaching others so they can teach others. He's getting back to that point we saw a few minutes ago in chapter 1 about this idea of why we've been left here is to share our faith. It's to share those fundamentals that he'll worth dying on so that other people can then share that. It's not a situation of Christianity of just packing our knowledge with history and theology and Bible stories. It's once you get enough to share, you go share it. And when you need to know more, you come back to the master, then you go out and you share that. And you come back and get a little bit more and go out and share that. And so he's trying to give as a church model, the model of discipleship. It's not just packing stuff into our brains and absorb it and feeling good about being a Christian, but using it to go disciple. So he says, get men in the church that can go teach. Teach them and let them go teach others. To the women, he does the exact same thing in verses 3. Sandwiched in between his discussion for the men, he talks about the older men, sorry, the older women and the younger women. And right in the middle in verses 3, he says they are to teach. So he recognizes that women need to teach in certain contexts, particularly to other women. Men need to teach in certain contexts, particularly to other men. And that's different than just class teachers or Bible teachers or pastors. It's everybody. It's the Great Commission lived out. And he's given a model for how to run a church through Titus that I think is absolutely fascinating. He continues as he gets through this chapter by looking at the issue that I put on the screen called Amazing Grace because he says, with the grace of God, the grace that we've been given, what are we supposed to do? Notice he's still not answering Titus's question of, God, when are you going to get me out of here? God, when are you going to give me something else better to do? When are you going to give me someplace else better to live? And now he's doing this dive not only into how he wants him to run the church and bring people into the church that can teach and disciple other people, but he says, now let's talk about grace. Let's talk about your spiritual gifts and the other spiritual gifts of people that are going to be in the church. And he starts in chapter 2 of verse 11 that says, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to, to deny godlessness and worldly lust, but instead live in sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So he starts out by saying the goal of the reason I'm having you do all this is we're trying to save everybody. His goal was grace sufficient for the salvation of all people. Does it mean that all people are going to be saved? Absolutely not. But it says the grace of God that put Titus in the place that he did not want to be was for the primary purpose of providing salvation for all people. And so in that situation, he's basically saying, understand the fundamentals. Understand why you're doing this. It's not about you. God put you here to help in the teaching of those who are in the church, particularly those that are false teachers. But to the rest of the world, it's an issue of their salvation. It's an issue of you sharing your faith. He then continues and he says in verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possessions, eager to do good works. Now here he's transitioning into the reason why Titus is there and the purpose of discipleship purpose of bringing these men and women into a church with a desire to replicate this discipleship. And it's the purpose of doing good things for other people. Now, 
We're going to talk about the reasons why you do this. He says our goal is the salvation of everybody. We're going to try to reach everybody, even if they're going to reject it. And the means to do it is good works, which are things other people need so they can see Christ in us. He continues and he says in verse 15, our application, he says, say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone disregard you. He's saying here when he talks about teaching, teach everybody. When he talks about encouraging and rebuking, he's talking about what he had to do in the church. So here he's taking both the concepts, what he had to do to the rest of the world, share with them the faith, share, teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Within the church, encourage and rebuke and do it with authority, meaning God puts you here. You don't have to be timid. You may not like being here, but God puts you here to share something. you got to start sharing it. So it's a model for Titus. It's a model for us, and it's absolutely fascinating. But we're still left with a question, why are we here? Why isn't he answering my question of God, get me out of here? God, give me a different job. God, give me different people to work with. Give me a different place to live. We still have to ask the question, just like Titus was, why are we still here? He says in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them, people in the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, avoid fighting, be kind, always showing gentleness for all people. His point here about being altruistic is essentially a point to make ready, where it says make ready for every good work, is to be available for every need where you can do good. When he says be ready for every good work, he's talking in the context of sharing the faith with other people. So rather than preach at them, rather than try to beat them up, rather than try to yell at them, he says be ready to do those opportunities to meet a need where you're doing good for somebody that needs it because that's how they can see Jesus Christ. That's how they can see his words. That's how they can feel his heart. Is by you doing something for them when they are in trouble. And then, and the reason we know that applies to everybody is the way I put it in gold at the very, very end where it says, always showing gentleness to all people. It's not just for the church. He's saying that applies to people whose lifestyle you don't like, whose language you don't like, whose job you don't like, whose relationships you don't like. It's showing when they've got a need in their heart how you can meet that need, how you can do good for them. And it's basically creating an issue of magnetism that draws them to Christ through the magnetism that you do in good things, not for your salvation, but because of who you are trying to reflect Jesus Christ in your life. He then continues by talking about uh, his perspective. He says, he, Christ, saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is a really important point because he's saying the whole reason of doing this is not to get any of us into heaven. That's not how we got saved. By doing those things, it's not keeping us saved. He says the way we got saved is the Holy Spirit came into our lives by mercy, not by what we did or didn't do, his mercy, and it changed us. It regenerated our soul. It our soul it made us different people so he's addressing the reason of why we're doing good things not for salvation but to share Christ and the how of doing those things is he changed us 
It's not by our mind. It's not because of a seminary education. It's not because we're smarter than somebody else and we figured out the gospel. It's because he changed us and made us a little bit more like him in order to have his words when we need them, to have his courage when we need them, to have his strength when we need them, and that's why we've been changed. It gives us an opportunity to share. It gives us an opportunity to disciple. He then continues in verse 8, and he's saying, this is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe God might be able to carefully devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable to everyone. What he's saying here is, I want you to have thankful obedience. The reason why we do things for people that need help, the reason we do these good works, is never about salvation. It's never about a check on the box to get us into heaven. It's never about a check on the box for what we're going to do in heaven. It's not a check in the box on where we're going to live in heaven. It's a check on the box for being thankful and being obedient for a God that gave us a Bible, a God that gave us truth, a God that gave us salvation, a God that gave us eternal life. And it's just simply us saying thank you. You've given me all of this. I'm going to be thankfully obedient. And now you can kind of start to see how he's answering Titus's fussing about where he is in life. Because if Titus is fussing, give me out of here, give me a new job, give me a new place to sleep, give me new people to talk to, he's saying, hang on, Titus. You need to be thankfully obedient. Back to the slave point, back to the servant of the sovereign, back to your leadership when you don't want to lead, back to your spiritual gifts. It all comes down to this point of being thankfully obedient. Despite my circumstances, despite being miserable, despite wanting to be somewhere else or living somewhere else or doing someone else, he's saying you need to be thankfully obedient. And that was his bottom line. It is fascinating to me as we apply this how it ends up because he's ending up in a way that ought to be encouraging to us because the first thing he does at the end of this letter is he's saying it's okay i'm going to get you out of there he says when i send artemis or tychius to you make every effort to come to me in nicopolis for i've decided to spend the winter there that's the city i showed you with the city wall and the amphitheater and all that kind of cool stuff he's going to spend the winter of 63 64 there he's saying titus when you're done with what I've told you to do, when you're done with what I've given you to do, come to me before winter and spend the winter ministering with me. He ends the letter by saying, you're praying, God, get me out of there. God's going to get you out of there, but it's going to be in God's timing. But now you know you can get out of there. When God opens up the door and you finished your ministry. Paul says, come to me in the winter. So the little encouragement to me is if you're praying, get me out of there, get me out of there. In God's timing, if he wants you out of there, he's going to get you out of there. The second thing that's fascinating to me is he talks about and ends on this same point he just drove home to Titus, and he says in verse 14, and our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works for cases of urgent need. And that's a great little way to prioritize what's going on because there's needs all around us. There's needs if you just read the newspaper, watch the news, particularly in this situation with all the unemployment strife and the crisis in the oil industry, there's urgent needs all around us. And his advice to Titus, and when he was encouraging Titus to make sure that his congregations there on the island knew, 
is we want to do good works. We want to do things where people have got urgent needs where they can see Christ in us meeting that need. And that was his end of the letter. And he's basically saying, if you're going to disciple, if you're going to create a spiritual DNA that then replicates in all of those that you leave behind, it's got to be focused on doing good things for people that have urgent needs. Now, it's fascinating. Remember, he's not trying to give them advice on how to stop them from lying or stop them from being polygamists or stopping them from being cheaters or stopping them from doing anything else bad. He says, let's focus on the fundamentals and let God do everything else. Let's focus on showing them what it's like to have Jesus Christ in someone's life. And if the Holy Spirit comes into their life and changes them, then you let God worry about the lifestyle that you don't like today. If you share Christ in you and let God worry about those lifestyle issues, that takes care of everything that you'd otherwise fuss about in lifestyle, them being liars, them being hedonists, them being cheaters. And God says, don't worry about that lifestyle. You focus on you meeting a need and sharing Jesus Christ in you. From everything we can tell in history, Titus did just that. But the application here I want you to see is very much a New Testament application of the book of Job. A couple of weeks ago before Easter, I kind of did a little devotional for those of you that were online uh, that I called the uh, devotional from the virus. And I shared with you how that week I was reading from the book of Job. And like I shared with you, as a lot of you know, Job is doing the same thing Titus is doing. Ask questions, God, why me? Why am I stuck in this situation with a family that's died, losing my job, losing my industry, my, my, my animals, uh, losing my friends, losing everything he's got? And he's saying, God, why me? Why now? Why here? And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God doesn't directly answer the question. He asks him a whole bunch of other questions, very much like Titus. He him to focus on his creator. getting to focus on him as the creation. getting to focus on why he's here as God's created loved one. And God did the same thing with Job that he's doing with Titus, which is, don't get hung up on me answering your question. Focus on the bigger questions that I've asked you, which is, are you going to be obedient? Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to do what I've asked you to do? And then once you're thankfully obedient, then God starts answering your questions. But until then, we, just like Job, we don't have any hope of getting the direct answer to the direct question. So it calls for thankful obedience before it calls for us to have a temper tantrum over questions not being answered about circumstances or places in life or places of uh, where we do the things we do. So it's a great little application between Old Testament and Job and New Testament Titus with the exact same message in very similar circumstances. Uh, no clue what Titus looked like, but this was a great artist rendition I put up on the screen. The church historians tell us that Titus uh, followed uh, Paul after they did that winter together in Nicopolis. He went back to Rome with him. He was with Paul during his final imprisonment, serving him. Uh, he was with Paul up until the time he was executed. And then he went back to Crete, got the churches in even better shape, continued to evangelize, continued to disciple. And when he got the island where he thought God wanted it, he moved up to the north. And church historians tell us that eventually uh, he made it all the way into what we would call uh, old Yugoslavia. Uh, today it's Serbia and Montenegro. 
And in that area today, the churches of Serbia, the Christian churches of Serbia, and some of the Christian churches of Montenegro tie their Christian history, their Christian faith, back to Titus, who first came to them in the early second, the end of the first century and the start of the second century, and ministered to them. When Titus was working with Paul, he was in his 20s, maybe the early 30s at the latest. Historians tell us he lived to the age of 97. And so after his time on Crete with Paul, and up until Paul's death, uh, he ministered as a young man, but then ministered for decades later as a faithful servant of God. And when we get to heaven, I look forward to some great stories that the historians didn't capture, and the scripture doesn't capture, but it's a great man of God. And we find ourselves frustrated and crying, God, get me out of this situation. God says, that's not the right question to be asking. And this lesson, I hope, gives us encouragement. We're saying, God, get us out of this virus. Get me out of my house confinement. Get me out of my place of not being employed or whatever situation we find ourselves struggling in to get us a point to answer the questions God wants us to answer and not the questions we just randomly throw up to God. Next week, we're going to focus on 1 Timothy. Paul's got one more letter before he's in prison again. He's going to write to Timothy back over in Ephesus. We're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about it because there's some deep, deep stuff there. And I've got even better application next week where we find ourselves in this virus than we did this week with Titus. We've got some great stuff next week. Join us next week, and we'll continue this great study. I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for your prayers for me and Natalie and the kids. Thank you for uh, your continued faithfulness to our class. Uh, I wish you all the best, and uh, thank you so much for being in our class, for your prayers, and your friendship. God, love, God bless. Thanks. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.